People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Preeminent pancreatic cancer expert Anurban Maitra is the first co-director and scientific director of MD Anderson Center for Pancreatic Cancer Research. Dr. Mitra's passion is to improve patient survival by discovering and developing ways to detect and treat pancreatic cancer. Please welcome Dr. Anurban Mitra to HealthGig. Well, thank you, Doro and Trish, for having me on the HealthGig podcast. It's a real honor to be here today. Trish and I know your work well, and it is so remarkable. For our listeners, we want you to know we have a personal connection to Anurban Maitra because Trish's husband, my brother-in-law, died of pancreatic cancer. The disease you're working so hard to eliminate you are an amazing support for Trisha and her family and her extended family, which includes all of us. And so we want our listeners to know you the way we do. So we're particularly glad you're with us today. I'm delighted to come and speak about some of the advances we have made in pancreatic cancer, what we can do in terms of risk, high-risk families, etc. But I will tell you that even in the last five years, we have seen a lot of very tangible advances in this disease, and I would love to share some of that with your listeners today. That would be great. So I guess the best place to start is, you know, what exactly is pancreatic cancer? So the word pancreatic cancer has been in the news a lot recently because of Mr. Alex Trebek, and he's been wonderful, very open in terms of his diagnosis, raised a lot of awareness for this disease. But there's still a lot of people out there who have no idea where the pancreas is or what pancreatic cancer is. And the first time they hear the words, it sends a surprise or a shock through them. So the pancreas is actually an organ that's located deep inside your abdomen or your belly behind the stomach. So you really can't feel it like a lump on the skin or in the neck or anything like that. And so that's one of the reasons why when pancreatic cancer happens, unfortunately, by the time it's diagnosed, it's often quite late in the disease process. This is not like a mole on your skin or a lump in the breast or something that you can see or feel very easily. Unfortunately, because of that, many patients present quite late in the disease when the cancer has already spread beyond the pancreas. Every year in the United States, we have about 53,000-plus Americans who get pancreatic cancer. And unfortunately, despite many of the advances we have made and some of which I'll talk about today, this continues to be a challenging disease. More than 45,000 of those will die from pancreatic cancer within a matter of months. If you just look at the numbers, this is the third most common cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States. It is actually more common than breast cancer as of last year and only stands behind lung cancer and colon cancer in terms of cancer-related deaths in this country. So this is clearly a disease that there's a lot we need to do about in terms of improving outcomes for our patients. 
The other thing I wanted to ask about is the difference between adenoma carcinoma and the other kind, which is endocrine, right? So could you just sort of speak to the difference? There are multiple different types of cancers that arise in the pancreas. And when we talk of pancreatic cancer, we talk of it as a monolithic entity, but that's not really true. There are over a dozen subtypes of pancreatic cancer. The most common subtype is the one that Mr. Trebek has, that Patrick Schwayze had, that Luciano Pavarotti had, which is called adenocarcinoma. It's 95% of pancreatic cancers. It's the one that we're really working hard to sort of improve the survival of because that's the one that's the deadliest. But there are other subtypes, the most common of which is the neuroendocrine tumors that Steve Jobs had or Rita Franklin had. And those tumors, even though unfortunately they are also not always the best outcome, but still the survival is much, much better than adenocarcinomas. I mean, compared to adenocarcinomas, where the five-year survival is less than 10%, this is about 50%. So 50% of patients will survive five years or longer, which is obviously much better. And the symptoms are very different compared to adenocarcinomas. That treatment is very different. And so one of the first things when somebody says they have pancreatic cancer is to figure out what kind of cancer is it? Is it an adenocarcinoma? Is it a neuroendocrine? Or is it one of those even rarer subtypes? And that's important because everything that happens afterwards in terms of treatments and outcomes and everything is going to be determined by that information. Why do you think pancreatic cancer is on the rise? That's a great question. It increasingly seems like it. You know, obviously you are a family that has been touched by this disease But when you talk to folks in society, I mean, we always think of pancreatic cancer as not a very common disease, but are increasingly meeting individuals who know someone they know who has had pancreas cancer, either in their family or a friend. So yes, the incidence of this disease feels like it's rising. And some of it that is because, well, one, we are living longer as a society, and that's wonderful. You know, I mean, life expectancy in the United States is rising, and pancreatic cancer is a disease of the elderly. The most common age group is in the 60s and 70s. Sometimes, rather unfortunately, you do get this disease in younger individuals. And, you know, unfortunately, Danny was one of them, and he was much younger than the average age group when he got pancreatic cancer. But for the most part, this is a disease that occurs in the 60s and 70s. So that's one reason why the incidence is rising. Also, we are getting better in terms of calling something pancreatic cancer. You know, you often hear stories of, well, my grandfather died of something that was all over the body, and we really don't know what it was. And now we know because we have sophisticated tools to say this is pancreatic cancer. So that's another reason why the numbers are going up, because we can call something pancreatic cancer much better. And the third reason, which I think is really important for your listeners, because I think, you know, there is a big interest in health and wellness amongst your listeners, is the fact that we are unfortunately in the middle of a diabetes and obesity epidemic in our country. And pancreatic cancer is one of the cancers that is associated with obesity, with higher body mass index lack of exercise, all of the stuff that we kind of passively tell as physicians our patients not to do, but which unfortunately is one of the contributors to pancreatic cancer and other cancer types too, not just pancreatic, but it is one of the cancers that is associated with obesity and longstanding diabetes. Why is that? 
Well, it is interesting, but obesity it's not just something that, you know, manifests itself externally as fat, but there's a lot that happens inside your body that you can't see. So when you are obese, there's also fat that gets deposited in and around the pancreas. And these fat cells, the scientific term for that is adipose cells or adipocytes. These are not just bystanders that are sitting there. They are living, breathing cells that make a lot of stuff, for lack of a better word. And this stuff is made by these cells, and they're released into the surrounding organs, including the pancreas, and they damage the organ. And when you have organ damage over time, it causes abnormalities in the DNA to accumulate. And that's sort of how cancer begins. It begins with abnormal DNA. So the relationship between body fat and many cancers is driven by the fact that fat cells make stuff that is not good stuff that is released and it causes damage over time. This is not something that happens overnight. I'm talking about years, you know, decades. But over time, that damage eventually leads to accumulation of damage in the DNA, which we call mutations, and that is how cancer begins. What about people like Alex Trebek? I mean, he doesn't look overweight, and several people that we know, they weren't overweight, at least as we've known them as adults. That's a great question, and I'm so glad you asked me that, because I think a common refrain from many patients that we encounter is, well, doc, I am not obese. I don't eat a lot of red meat. I don't smoke. Why did I get pancreatic cancer? And that's the unfortunate truth. When we talk about risk factors for cancer, it's not an all or none phenomenon. Obesity is associated with a higher risk of pancreatic cancer, but the amount or the number of pancreatic cancers that are attributable to obesity is probably about 25% or so, which means in 75% of individuals, you can't say, well, obesity was one of the risk factors. So risk factor doesn't mean it has to be present. When it is present, it increases the risk of having that disease, but it doesn't mean it has to be present. The same thing for smoking. Approximately a quarter of pancreatic cancers patients are smokers, but there's three quarters who are not. So there's that paradox, which is a risk factor increases the risk for a cancer, but you still have a lot of individuals who don't have that risk factor and who still get the disease. And in that case, sometimes you just don't know why it happened. I mean, in Mr. Trebek, who's 78 years old and seems to be in great shape, obviously very healthy, likely exercises, why did he get pancreatic cancer? The answer to that is we simply don't know. So I remember when Danny couldn't sleep lying down. Correct me if it was before he was diagnosed. You know, we didn't know then, but the back pain, and I think what we want to talk to you about is, you know, what are some of the symptoms? Because in our case, we didn't know that that was it. And he was seeing a gastro and he was, you know, thinking he had indigestion. And then the other thing that happened with him, and I know you want to talk about this, is that he was diagnosed with diabetes type 2. And we definitely want to share that with our listeners. And the question there was, that was what happened. So that's why he had the rapid weight loss, right? And then he went to the chronologist. They put him on metformin. And then his weight stabilized. 
So maybe we could talk about the symptoms, those hidden symptoms, because what we hear about from people with pancreatic cancer is, you know, they're just going along their life feeling great. I mean, particularly I know my husband was, he was never sick. So these symptoms that came up, we just were attributing to different situations. So if you can share all of the symptoms that you see and what we can get people to hear and be aware of, that would be awesome. Absolutely. So remember in the beginning of the podcast, I said that the pancreas is located behind the stomach in your belly. So you can't really feel it like a lump like you would or see it like a mole on your skin. So when your doctor examines you on your annual checkup, he or she typically looks at the skin, feels all over for lumps and bumps. You can't do that with the pancreas. And unfortunately, because of that, many of the early symptoms of pancreatic cancer are really vague. It could be just this sort of discomfort in your belly, the sense of indigestion. Back pain, which you did mention, is another feature of pancreatic cancer. Now, it's very important for me to emphasize one thing. There are millions of Americans who have low back pain. We just sit too much and we type all day. So all of us suffer from low back pain. That is not the pain of pancreatic cancer. The pain in pancreatic cancer that radiates to the back is more sort of in the middle of your belly. It's higher up than the low back pain, which comes from bad posture. So I want to make sure that your listeners don't <laughs> go to the physician saying, do I have pancreatic cancer? That's because the pain is a very different pain. And it often feels like it doesn't respond to painkillers not like, you know, you pop a couple of Motrin and you feel better with the low back pain from bad posture. This is not that pain. So indigestion, vague abdominal sort of discomfort, middle of your back pain, then weight loss. Weight loss, again, it's unfortunate because there is, you know, almost this positive reinforcement that we all have. I have it too when I have lost five pounds by exercising and eating well and I feel like it's an achievement. But sometimes couched within that weight loss is the unfortunate sort of occurrence of having an undiagnosed pancreatic cancer. And typically the weight loss you see with pancreatic cancer is not just a couple of pounds. It is 5, 10, 15 pound weight loss, which that point it becomes alarming, especially if it's in somebody who's in the elderly age group. The other most obvious signs of pancreatic cancer is jaundice. So if somebody suddenly realizes that their eyes are yellow, you know, your spouse or a family member suddenly says, why are you yellow? It's very important that you immediately see a doctor because that could be, especially in an elderly age group, somebody who has a cancer of the pancreas in the head that's obstructing the flow of bile, which is the yellow stuff that's made by your liver. And so that makes your eyes go yellow. So jaundice is a more obvious manifestation. And then let's talk a little bit about diabetes. I think it's important because this is a connection that many physicians even don't yet know. So I talked about long-standing diabetes as a risk factor for pancreatic cancer. This is the opposite. Here I'm talking about diabetes, new onset that has not happened before, becoming a manifestation of a pancreatic cancer that has not yet been diagnosed, okay? So this is not someone who's had long-standing diabetes for 10, 20 years and then gets pancreas cancer, you know, in their 60s and 70s. I'm talking here about an otherwise healthy 50-year-old man who suddenly develops new onset diabetes. And then there's the other caveat, which is that diabetes is not responding well to treatment or 
remember how your doctor tells you, go home and lose 10 pounds and your diabetes will get better. In this case, the diabetes doesn't get better even when the person keeps losing weight. So that should send alarm bells ringing in any physician's mind. When you have a diabetes that doesn't respond to weight loss, doesn't respond to medication, is there the possibility that this could be pancreatic cancer related? Now, again, very important, just like the low back pain caveat I talked about, which is that millions of low back pain, that's not pancreas cancer. The same thing with diabetes. Every year in the United States, we have 2 million adults who are diagnosed with new onset diabetes the overwhelming majority of them still have new-onset diabetes. It's just diabetes. In fact, if you take a room of 100 individuals with new-onset diabetes, no more than one of them is going to have a pancreatic cancer, okay? So it's only one in 100 of new-onset diabetics. The remaining 99 still have diabetes. So it's very important for me to emphasize this so we don't, just because somebody has new-onset diabetes, they should not panic that they may have pancreatic cancer. It's only when that new-onset diabetes diabetes is not responding to therapy despite weight loss. It keeps getting worse. That's when physicians should start worrying. But it is something that is a connection that is often not known in the medical community. And it's something that we are really hopeful of getting the word out that you need to think about this connection when you see someone who's got new onset diabetes that just looks a little bit odd. The other thing that some patients get is, again, as a prodrome to being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer is depression or other mental health symptoms. So we typically think of mental health in the context of someone who's already been given a cancer diagnosis, and that's not uncommon. It's unfortunate, but but it's something that needs to be paid attention to. But there's also the prodrome. There are patients who have been reported to have suddenly developed depressive symptoms or other mental health symptoms before a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And some of that, I think, is just a reflection of the systemic changes that are happening in your body that also have profound effects on sort of the mental health homeostasis that's happening. When all this is happening, where do you stage it? Is it growing rapidly, you know, or do you even know? It's hard to put exact timeline on it, but when you look back at some of the very careful research studies that have been done, we know that pancreas cancer doesn't develop overnight. It takes years for this disease to happen and get to the point where it has spread beyond the pancreas. The part that we see as physicians and surgeons, unfortunately, is the part that's kind of, you're seeing it in the last sort of five meters of a 100-meter race. But there's been 95 meters before that where this cancer was marching towards the finish line and we didn't even diagnose it. So there are two ways of looking at this. One is the cup half empty, which is, my goodness, you know, we're catching this disease so late in the process, there's nothing we can do. But there's also the cup half full, which is because there's this huge, you know, 95 meters before that that exists, this gives us what we call a window of opportunity. If pancreatic cancer is a 100-meter race and we're just seeing the last five meters, well, there's this 95 meters before that gives us a window of opportunity to intervene and stop the cancer, a term that we now call interception. You intercept the cancer and potentially prevent it from being fatal in the patient. And so this is also another sort of way of looking at this, that yes, we are not catching this disease early enough, but if we could, 
there would be an enormous opportunity to set the tide back here and really make a difference. So are you saying the interception could happen when someone's beginning to feel some of the pain? Is that what you're saying? Or what are you saying interception could begin? So I think for most patients, unfortunately, by the time they have actual symptoms of pancreas cancer, the disease is already in a place where it's spread beyond the pancreas, or even if it's in the pancreas, it might still spread despite surgery. You identify individuals who not only do they not have cancer, they may or may not even have the earliest stages that precede cancer, or we call precancer. They are defined simply by the fact that they are at risk for cancer. It's kind of like saying you are at risk for heart disease. You don't have heart disease. Your arteries are not clogged, or you're at risk for something, some other disease. You don't have it yet. But we know that you are at risk, and we are going to do everything possible to make sure you never get that disease. So when I mean interception, that's what I'm talking about. And I will give you an example of what I mean by that. We now know that about 10% of pancreatic cancers are caused in families because they have a gene or a known gene, for example, that is causing this disease to occur in certain members of the family if they have that abnormal gene. And the most common gene, and this might come as a surprise to some of your listeners, the most common gene in families, I'm not talking about the population at large, but if you have a family that has two or three family members with pancreatic cancer or other cancers related to this gene, the most common gene is actually the breast and ovarian cancer gene, BRCA2, BRCA2. So BRCA2 is called BRCA for breast cancer gene because it is the gene that is associated most commonly with breast and ovarian cancers in families. But many families don't know that one of the other cancers that is associated with BRCA mutations is also pancreatic cancer. So if you have a family where there was a pancreatic cancer or a breast ovarian cancer and that particular patient carries a abnormality in that gene, other family members should be tested to see if they have that abnormality as well. Why is that? Because they could be at risk. They don't have the cancer, but they could be at risk for the cancer. And then you could ask them to join a screening program where they could be monitored over time and potentially the mere occurrence of the cancer could be prevented through the screening program. So that's one example of what we call cancer interception. We are not finding the cancer when it's already happened and it has spread. That's not interception. That's treatment. Interception means defining who's at risk before they even have the cancer and then putting them on screening programs where we can prevent the cancer from from actually even happening. Are the screening programs prevalent? I mean, are they at MD Anderson, or where are the screening programs? Absolutely. So there are obviously at all of the big academic centers around the country. You know, MD Anderson has it, Johns Hopkins, Sloan Kettering, Georgetown, all of the big academic centers in and around the big cities. But increasingly, there are other places as well that are actually opening up such screening programs for what we call high-risk family members. These are family members, again, we call them high-risk because they don't themselves have cancer, 
but they are at risk, much higher risk than any of us would be for getting the disease because they carry a mutation or they have a very, very strong family history. So if I can talk a little bit about a study that we have opened recently, this is actually a study that is funded through Stand Up to Cancer. I'm sure you've heard about this incredible organization based out of the West Coast that has done so much for cancer research and clinical trials. So Stand Up to Cancer, in collaboration with an organization called the Lusgarten Foundation for Pancreatic Cancer, has funded us to open a study called the Generate Study. And the website for this is generatestudy.org. And I encourage any of your listeners who have a family history of pancreatic cancer and where there may be an underlying abnormality or mutation that's causing that disease to check out generatestudy.org, the website. And what we are doing is we are basically offering such families the opportunity to get tested for mutations free of cost from the living room. Remember, this is the age of Amazon, right? So we will send you to your home a kit that you can use to get tested. And then if you are, in fact, a carrier of one of these mutations or abnormalities that has previously caused pancreatic cancer in the family, we will assign you to screening programs where you can determine your personal risk and you can enter that screening program and get screened, which typically includes, you know, blood tests, imaging studies, etc. So it's one way for us to really enhance the breadth of identifying who is at risk. This is one thing we haven't done well as a scientific community, which is we are waiting for our patients to come to us with the diagnosis, by which time it's too late. We need to proactively go out and find individuals who are at risk before they get the cancer and say, let's do something for you. That's the name of the game. You find that people are willing to do that or unwilling to do that? So far, we have not encountered major hurdles with this. Obviously, you know, cancer in a family is a deeply personal issue and genetic testing, you know, there's still a lot of mistrust or lack of understanding about what the implications are for it. But we obviously have put any study of this nature has a lot of privacy measures in place and, you know, there's strict confidentiality, et cetera. The idea is it's an avenue for us to enhance genetic testing for high-risk families at no cost to those family members and to be doing it in a way that's convenient without having to drive 40 miles to come to a big center. And I think one thing that has helped us quite a bit is the propagation of direct-to-consumer tests like uh, 23andMe or Ancestry.com and all these other websites that are offering genetic testing. I mean, it's not genetic testing, you know, it's kind of the fun, where did your ancestors come from, you know, but the whole idea that, oh, DNA testing is fun is slowly sort of creeping into society and that you're not going to be harmed by this necessarily. And so the idea here is that embrace of DNA testing, can we now turn it into something that's more than just, oh, my ancestors came from Ireland versus can we actually use it for things like identifying high-risk individuals for pancreatic cancer and other cancer types and put them on screening programs. So it's taking this increased awareness and embrace of DNA testing in society at large that's permeating through our culture and using that for something beyond just fun and games. I think it was Hippocrates that said food is medicine. What's the role of nutrition in prevention and the treatment of 
pancreatic cancer? That's a great question. I think pancreatic cancer, as I mentioned previously, one of the risk factors is obesity. Again, not everyone with this disease is obese or has diabetes, but again, one of the risk factors is obesity. And there's also a risk associated with high consumption of red meat. And so the usual good advice that we would give to anyone, exercise, stay within a healthy body mass index, don't overconsume red meat. I mean, I am in Texas, so it would be, you know, <laughs> a heresy for me to say don't have barbecue, but everything in moderation and have more fiber, more fruits and vegetables. I still remember, Doro, you telling me one avocado a day, and I try to conform to that as much as possible. I, I have an avocado a day. So, you know, eat well. That's important. Now, in patients who are diagnosed with the disease, you have to remember one of the unfortunate byproducts of pancreas cancer, and Trish, you know this unfortunately personally yourself, is that it causes tremendous muscle wasting and weight loss. And it's very important for patients to make sure that they keep their strength intact as much as possible. So to eat protein-rich diets and you know make sure that they're able to tolerate chemotherapy or radiation and other treatments that they're being offered. Now, there's a lot of myths out there in terms of, quote-unquote, starving the tumor, and I think it's very important to dissipate that myth. You don't really starve a tumor by not eating. It doesn't help. In fact, what the tumor does inside is that it basically keeps eating away from your muscles and fat and depletes your strength even further. So, not eating because you can starve the tumor is actually a myth that I want to dispel for your listeners. It's very important that you eat and you eat well after diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. What about the role of sugar in your mind? Well, that's interesting. So sugar, obviously, as a risk factor, you know, obviously carbohydrates, of which sugar is probably the number one prototype, is a risk factor for pancreatic cancer simply because of the obesity connection and the diabetes connection. But I think in terms of post-diagnosis, there is, again, schools of thought believe that you should cut down on sugar intake and go more ketotic. I don't think that that's yet established very well, and I think we should be careful. Again, I'm not talking about the population at large. I'm talking about in the context of having a pancreas cancer diagnosis, if you completely remove sugar from your diet and follow a ketogenic diet, is that necessarily beneficial? That has not been rigorously established in a manner that I would necessarily advocate. I think there are some early clinical trials that are being done where the ketogenic diet is being combined. It's very important. It's been combined with certain drugs that together work in dampening pancreatic cancer growth. But just to do the ketogenic diet alone can actually be counterproductive. So be careful about dietary recommendations. Most academic centers like MD Anderson, Johns Hopkins, etc., will have a nutritionist who will be part of your team. And it's very important for patients to make sure they get appropriate nutritional advice. What about the role of stress from your viewpoint? That's a great question. And there is data that obviously it's hard to do these kind of trials, so to speak, in humans, but there is good data in animal models in the lab that stress actually makes pancreatic cancers grow faster and spread in the body. This is all done in laboratory animals, so take it with a grain of salt. And when you look back 
at retrospective data, clinical data in patients with pancreatic cancer, those who had certain medications that reduce the level of stress-causing enzymes like catecholamines, for example, they tend to have a lower incidence of pancreas cancer, or when they do have pancreas cancer, they tend to have a somewhat better survival. This is not etched in stone, but I think the evolving thought is that stress is not good for patients who have been diagnosed. Obviously, there is a lot of stress, the stress of treatment, financial stress, et cetera. But as much as possible, one should reduce the stress based on evidence in laboratory animals that suggest that the hormones that are released because of stress can actually make cancer cells grow faster. What are the new treatments now? So we now have new chemotherapy, which is the standard backbone that is still given most commonly in cancers. We have new chemotherapy combinations that have emerged that really having an impact in terms of survival. Much of this, unfortunately, is still seen in the subset of patients. It's about 15 or 20 percent of patients who present early enough that they can undergo surgery. Of the 100 patients that come in with pancreas cancer at our clinic, 80 of them will already have the disease spread beyond the pancreas and they can't undergo surgery. But about 15 to 20% can undergo surgery. And in those patients, we are actually starting to see real improvements in terms of outcomes thanks to some of the new therapies that have emerged in the last five years. Some of these patients are surviving five, six, seven years and even longer And so I think that's really one area where we are starting to see a lot of impact. But as I said, unfortunately, there's only 15 or 20 percent of patients who are surgical candidates. And one of the goals of research that's done by us and many others around the country is how do we get that number to 50 percent or higher? So get more patients to our surgeons and get them operated because those are the individuals who tend to do the best. There's also very exciting new therapies that are being still tested. I mean, again, it's not had the kind of impact that you've seen in some of the other diseases like lung cancer or melanoma, which are these treatments that basically boost your immune system. It's called immunotherapy. And there are a lot of new immunotherapy combinations that are being tried. Unfortunately, the outcome so far has not been as promising as we would like to have seen, you know, for example, with melanoma or lung cancer, where we're really having profound effects of these drugs. But there's some very exciting trials going on right now around the country where we are combining different immunotherapy modalities with these conventional chemotherapy agents and starting to see some really interesting responses. One thing I will tell you is when I go to pancreatic cancer advocacy meetings, etc., 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when we used to say, okay, can the survivors in the room stand up? There's to be one or two people. And now increasingly there are, you know, dozens who stand up and it's a real a fulfilling sight for someone who's been working in this disease for 20 years to see that change happening where we are seeing literally in real time now survivors taking charge of their treatment of their disease and coming to these advocacy meetings. One of the things I have to always say is, you know, when you go to a breast cancer run, everyone's a survivor. When you go to a pancreas cancer run, they're all caregivers and family members, unfortunately, because the patients are tragically gone. Well, that's changing. When we go to these runs and walks, now our patients are there. And that's an amazing welcome sight to see.
That's so exciting. But I imagine it is hard to deal with the death that's associated with pancreatic cancer. And how do you deal with that? And how do you get support? One of the things that, you know, as family members being touched by this disease, you've been through this process, so I'm somewhat preaching to the choir. The diagnosis is not just devastating for the patient. It has profound effects on the family. And I think it's very important that in our care of pancreatic cancer, in the holistic care of pancreatic cancer, which includes not just the drugs or the radiation, but the exercise and the nutrition and the well-being that we think about for the patient, we also think the same things for the caregiver. It is very natural for caregivers to get so enmeshed in the process of healing and taking care of the patient that they often neglect themselves. And I think caregiver wellness is something that we haven't done as well as we should have. I encourage your ambassadors of wellness, the best ones I know. And so I think it's very important to make sure that, you know, you spread this message about caregiver wellness, that it's not important just to treat the patient. That is obviously a primary goal, but the family members around them, especially the primary caregiver, it's very important that their wellness and needs are also kept in mind. I think you're right. And again, it's important because you have to stay strong for so many reasons and your health and wellness is so important. But Anurban, I think too, what Dora and I were thinking about when we wanted to ask you this question about death is how do you deal with it? It is hard. And you know that you form connections with not just your patient, but with the family members. I mean, you often meet and talk and have conversations. And these conversations are not just about, well, what treatment you're going to take, but sometimes these conversations are about, well, where's your daughter going to college? And you form a bond. A good doctor forms a bond. It's not just a transactional relationship. And so it is hard, but I think we get strength from the family and the family gets strength from us. It's a mutual relationship here. And I think for us, it is if nothing else, motivation to make sure that we try harder, do better. I always feel like we didn't do enough when we lose someone that we are taking care of. And it's motivation that I try harder and I make sure that our next patient and the patient after, we keep doing better. I know I can speak for Tricia when I say how grateful we are to MD Anderson and all the amazing doctors there. And tell us about the moonshot at MD Anderson. Sure. So the cancer moonshot, and now there is a national cancer moonshot that was initiated by Joe Biden and, and others and funded through the NCI, the National Cancer Institute. But before that, before the national level cancer moonshot, there was the MD Anderson moonshot. And that was started by our prior president, Dr. Ron DePino. And his goal was to bring together teams, uh, dedicated researchers, clinicians, who would all work together in one disease type. And they would basically put all their hearts and minds and brains together to make an impact that is not just incremental. It's not something that's just sort of one step forward, but 10 steps forward. And it's kind of echoed in the motto of the national moonshot, where Vice President Biden said that he would like to get done in five years what used to be done in 10 or 15. And it's the same thing with our cancer moonshot. What can we do faster, quicker, with a clear line of impact 
to the clinic. This is not about glory or writing a paper or whatever. This is about having an impact on the patient. And so I'm very privileged to co-lead the pancreas cancer moonshot with Dr. Bob Wolf, who, as you well know, is one of our oncologists, and Dr. Matt Katz, who's one of our surgeons. So Dr. Katz, Dr. Wolf, and myself, we co-lead the pancreas cancer moonshot. And we have about 40 researchers and clinicians and scientists who are all working together, all focused on pancreatic cancer. The sort of the mantra that guides us, and I make sure that everyone knows this because I think it is critical that we always remember what we are here for and what we are doing. And that mantra is what President Truman said, which is, it is amazing what you can accomplish if you do not care who gets the credit. So this is not for the glory of one individual. This is not for one person. This is all of us working as a team together to make sure that we have a meaningful impact in the lives of our patients. I'm very happy to say, because I know that Dr. Patrick Wu was one of the guests on your podcast. He's unbelievable, yeah. (laughs) So Patrick, and this is just a great example of what the moonshot has done, and the whole principle of you don't care about who gets the credit, you just come together and you work. So Patrick is, as you know, a melanoma doc, and all his life he studied melanoma. But when we started the moonshot, we went to Patrick and said, you guys have done amazing things for melanoma. I mean, this disease used to have 5% of patients surviving. Now 50%, 60% of patients survive five years or longer. This is what I would love to have in pancreas. Can you come and work with us? And so he did. And through the moonshot now, we have folks like Patrick and many others who never used to work in pancreatic cancer now come together in our team. And so that's one of the goals. I don't care what your specialty is. If you have a great idea, if you have something to offer that we can then take to our patients, come on board, you're part of our team. And that way we're going to move the needle so much faster and save lives so much. Absolutely. What is your favorite book these days? It's a book called When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalaniti. This is a book that I keep on my shelf. And it's not kept with other books. It's kept by itself. And it's such an important book for me. It's a very difficult book. It's a book that was written by a 36-year-old doctor from Stanford who was dying of metastatic lung cancer with a young wife and a young child, I mean, a newborn daughter. And the book is something that has moved me deeply. This is my reality checkbook. It inspires me and reminds me every day that our task here is incomplete, that we have long ways to go for our patients. But it also tells me that it is important to remind our patients and our families that they need to live life, and the time that we have on this planet is finite, and that we need to face it with fortitude and a sense of optimism. So if there's one book, I have to warn you, this is a tough book to read. But if you can get through it, it will stick with you forever. I strongly recommend it. And a favorite quote? Seven words by Samuel Beckett that Paul quotes in the book. I cannot go on. I will go on. And I think it's something that I have really sort of enmeshed in my heart. Thank you. And thank you for the work you do. And 
We just want to spread the word that what you're doing and help people become better educated on pancreas cancer. It was an honor to be on Health Cake Podcast, Doro and Trish. Thank you for having me. And again, thank you for everything you're doing. Thank you for joining us on Health Cake. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.